that's one of the biggest barriers to entry is, is the cost factor. I think there's a missed opportunity that we should be utilizing um, in doctor's offices where we're able to have some of these types of conversations. I'm Dr. Lisa Fitzpatrick, founder of Grapevine Health and your host of the Grapevine Health Podcast, a podcast highlighting stories, health insights, and experiences of community members. We started this podcast because too often discussions and decision-making about health and the healthcare system don't include perspectives from the people we serve. So listeners, if you have a personal story or an experience from working in the community or on the front lines of healthcare, contact us and we might have you on the show. Today's conversation is with Rosemary Inabakari, a health advocate who spends her days talking directly to patients. Hi, Rosemary. Hi. Thanks for talking to me today. I'm so intrigued by the work you're doing around patient advocacy. So we're going to have a great conversation. Absolutely. I'm excited about it. Tell people who you are and what you do. Yeah, I'm Rosemary Enobakari. Uh, I am the campaign director for Healthcare Voter. Uh, Healthcare Voter is an advocacy organization that ma- mobilizes patients across the country um, to fight for quality, affordable healthcare and medicines. That sounds like a hard job, <laughs> but very relevant right now. Very relevant right now, especially now. Um, now that Justin Ginsburg has, has passed and everything that's happening with the Supreme Court and health care and the Affordable Care Act, we have a lot at stake around health care. And so it's really important to talk about this, especially leading up to the election, to make sure that we are educating Americans across the country, particularly communities of color, um, because we, um, uh, me as a black woman, we as black women have a lot at stake mm-hmm. uh, um, when it comes to healthcare in this country. So mm-hmm. making sure that we're educating people about what's at stake um, is really important right now. So that's the work that we're doing. So most of the time you're on the phone talking to people or is this face-to-face outreach? A little bit of both. Um, we go across the country and we work with folks, listen to people's stories. We monitor social media. People reach out to us via social media. We have affiliates in the states who are organizing across the country to really engage people and talk about their stories on healthcare. People are concerned. Mm-hmm. The costs associated with healthcare uh, is is alarming, um, and it's important for us to make sure that we're we're galvanizing those folks and making sure that those voices are being heard uh, in the halls of of, of Congress. Mm. Um, and making sure that we are creating legislation and policies um, that will curb prices um, and really put people first and not put these massive corporations, these insurance companies, um, these pharmaceutical corporations first. Yeah. So tell me some of the the most uh, compelling things you've heard or concerns you've heard from people about health and healthcare. One of the most uh, startling stories that I heard was this young lady uh, her name's Sarah. Uh, she lives in uh, Indiana. 
um, in the shadows of Eli Lilly. Uh, Eli Lilly is pharmaceutical a pharmaceutical company. company. Um, and they are the, the U.S.-based company that produces insulin. Insulin is a drug that's almost 100 years old. Um, it was created in Canada. Um, and the patent that was that was created in association with that drug was was made and given away for one dollar because the founder wanted it to be a public commodity. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, uh, pharmaceutical companies got their hands on that patent and have abused it ever since. Um, again, insulin has not changed in almost a hundred years, um, but pharmacy corporations are 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 making billions of dollars off of that one drug. So what happened with this lady? Um, so for for Sarah, she has insurance, um, but in order for her to get her medication every month, uh, it's $1,000 for insulin. She's a type 1 diabetic, mm. um, and people who have type 1 diabetes rely on insulin, and they need to take it daily, multiple times a day, in order for them to be able to live. So is that a, a change, a recent change, or she's always had to pay $1,000? It's been... The price of insulin for her has always been extremely high. Uh, insulin used to be, um, you know, be relatively cheap. And I say relatively because, you know, it's relative. Um, but it used to be relative, relatively affordable when she was younger. But as, the, as time goes on, things get higher and higher and higher. And so the price tag associated with that has just grown significantly. Um, she and her sister both have diabetes. And her sister opted to not work. And get on Medicare because that was the oh, only so way that she, she was afford... able to afford her medication. Wow. Are you hearing a lot of stories like that related Tons to medication? Tons of stories like that. Do you have another one to tell us? Specifically, type, people with type 1 diabetes are organizing online. There's so many groups who are who are starting to be able to give folks who have diabetes voices. Mm-hmm. Uh, people are having to make some stark um, some stark choices on, mm-hmm. on if they should eat, if they can pay their mortgage or rent. Um, there's a young guy, his name's Dante. He lives in North Carolina that we heard from. Um, and he opted, again, also not to work in order to be able to get on Medicare because he couldn't afford for his his insulin. Um, and because of that, he stopped taking it. Um, and then he got kidney disease, ended up being on dialysis because he was not taking his insulin, wow. right? So, like, so many people are just really having to make some, some hard decisions. A young lady here in Washington, D.C., uh, uh, who was covered pretty, pretty, uh, heavily in the media. Um, I'm blanking on her name, but I can, I remember her story very well. She sold her car, could not pay her, her, um, her, uh, rent, ended up moving in with a friend, basically selling everything except the, the clothes off of her back to pay for her in medication. order to be able to pay for her insulin. She literally could mm-hmm. not afford it. She was a young woman, new to DC, you know, trying to get on the political scene. Um, and you know, in political jobs, you don't make a ton of money. Um, and so in order to be able to pay her the price tag for her medication, um, she had to sell everything mm-hmm. in order to be able to continue to live her life. Yeah. Are you hearing any stories about um, trust or disrespect in the healthcare system? For black women, uh, I hear it all the time. Okay. Uh, tell especially, us you know, here in DC, I can't tell you any statistics. Um, but I have heard of, of so many black women being scared to have babies in this city, in Washington, D.C. Wow. Um, because, you know, as, as we've heard, doctors don't always listen to, to black women when we talk about pain, when we talk about what's going on with us. And so a lot of times that falls on deaf ears. Um, and so there's a, there is a lack of trust and people are very careful about where they go in the city. That's the one thing I noticed when I moved over here. It's the sirens all the time. 
Any any other um, any other stories around trust, or maybe even a story in your own experience around uh, distrust in healthcare, or things that have eroded trust? Um, for me, you know, because of the trust factor, I try to always get black doctors. Mm. Um, uh, because black doctors are who I know, who I trust ever since I was younger. My, my parents made sure that we always went to black doctors coming from the South. Uh, and where are you from? Uh, Mississippi. Uh, oh, wow. coming from the South, you know, it's important to rely on people who look like you. Um, because unfortunately, you know, you just never know what you're going to get when you, when you, um, go to folks who don't look like you. And mm-hmm. they also may not understand the level of care that you need, right? And so making sure that you prioritize those types of doctors is, is really important for me. Um, I work closely with the National Medical Association. So I like, I am able to like have conversations with, you know, doctors there to make sure that I'm getting connected to good folks. And that's the black arm of the American Medical Association. No, they're separate. Um, uh, from what I understand, they're separate, but it is all black physicians mm-hmm. um, who are organizing around, you know, public health and on behalf of their patients. Mm-hmm. Um, I work closely with them. I work closely with the Black Women's Health Imperative, but it's really important to to make sure you have doctors who understand you um, understanding your background and your culture. And so I, I, I rely on, on Black doctors personally. You, you mentioned you are connected to the NMA. You're connected to the uh, Black Women's Health Imperative. That's not by accident, right? You had to be proactive to make that happen. Totally. So I'm interested in hearing that story. So to create my relationship with those groups, I organized with them when I was working for the Democratic National Committee to engage them in the in the election. Um, there's no voice more credible in the community than our Black doctors, right? I also worked with them when I was at the Environmental Protection Agency. People don't associate the environment with public health, but the work that we do at the Environmental Protection Agency is about public health. Do you remember um, a story when you had to to help someone understand the connection between health and the environment? One of the best stories is Flint, Michigan. I was at the EPA when Flint happened, and Flint was essentially a public health crisis. People were being exposed to, to massive levels of lead, um, and when people ingest lead, that creates all types of medical conditions, mm-hmm. right? From, you know, slow brain activity to like learning learning disorders, disabilities, and so on, mm-hmm. right? And so that was an instance where it was a direct correlation between health and the environment, right? People need access to clean air and clean water. Mm-hmm. Usually when I go into a room, when I was at the EPA, I would say, raise your hand if you know a child who has an inhaler. You wouldn't, th- people would think that not a lot of people would raise their hand, but the whole room raised their hand because now kids mostly have inhalers because of the air quality, mm-hmm. right? And so that's an environmental, that's an environmental hazard that's causing havoc on public health. And like we're seeing implications of that on our kids. Yeah. Have you seen any improvements in that since uh, the pandemic, given all the, the, the shutdown and the impact on uh, traffic and congestion? We've definitely seen some improvement, but there's obviously a whole lot more that needs to be done. So let's talk about trust in healthcare a a bit more, though. There are a lot of conversations about the need to make healthcare more patient-friendly. Patient-centricity is one of the new terms. Mm -hmm. Um, Patient-centered care. What do you think we need to do to really make that happen? Patient-centered care. I mean, look... At the end of the day, it's, that's who it's about. It's about the patient. Yeah, right? but what do we have to do to, to make it that way? We talk about it a lot. Yeah. I haven't really thought about this question a whole lot. 
Um, Why not? I don't know. You talk to people all the time <laughs> about their concerns about the healthcare system. I do. I, but I also talk to them specifically about the Affordable Care Act and like how it can't be wiped away because it provides healthcare for millions of Americans across the country. Or uh, I talk about it from like pre-existing conditions, right? Like yeah. we, people in this country have pre-existing conditions. And before the ACA was enacted, insurance companies were able to, to discriminate against people yeah, who, have, dis- who have pre-existing conditions. But now with that ACA in place, and when I say ACA, I should say the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare for people who may not know, um, it's really important to talk about that because if it's wiped away as the Trump administration and Republicans want... <laughs> Those people will lose access to, to to these protections and be able to be discriminated against. Yes, but I, I still I'm gonna press you on this. I I, I understand that part. Yeah, you talk to people. I mean, we we need to hear voices directly from the community, from patients, mm-hmm. and you are right in it. Yep, like that's your job. Yep. So. Just dream for a minute. Okay. If we want to make healthcare more patient-centered, more patient-friendly, make it an experience that people actually are, I wouldn't say excited about, but at least not um, afraid of or intimidated by. Yeah. What do, just name one thing we would have to fix (laughs) to make that happen. The thing that you would need to fix, I would say associated with cost. Okay. I think people are scared around anything on healthcare is because costs are so high. If you go to the hospital, people are terrified of this massive bill. Mm-hmm. You go to the pharmacy, people are terrified of this massive bill. Even going to doctors' offices, right? Or like going to get screeners, right? People are terrified. I think that that's one of the biggest barriers to entry is, is the cost factor. Mm-hmm. Um, we talk about, and I'm going to go back to the Affordable Care Act, but also, uh, you know, this, yes, it's in place, and yes, it can be fixed. Um, but honestly, in order to make sure that we're able to really fix the system, I think there needs to be structural change altogether. We need to really figure out how to make sure that people are again, people are centered, uh, and their and, and their needs are being addressed. And, and cost is a main factor for that. People don't go to the doctor because they don't have the money to be able to pay for. Any, again, these massive bills that they get after going to the doctor, they just rather go to the emergency room, um, which is not a way to continue to make sure that you're being um, cared for and making sure that your yeah. health is, is 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 in line. Going to the emergency room is not the way forward. Do you feel like people recognize that, that they should use um, or they should have a relationship with a provider? Versus the emergency room? Have, I do. have people talked about that? People, no, I mean, people know that they shouldn't be going to the emergency room because they don't get the level of care that they need. Plus, you get di- different doctors every time. You know, you need to be able to go to a doctor who understands you, who knows your medical history to be able to. And you feel like people know that. Care. I think so. I think so. The yeah. people who I talk to, I do because they're patients, right? And like patients know that they need to be able to go to the doctor to be able to to sustain themselves rather than going to the emergency room. Yeah. You don't think that people see that or, or know that? I think it depends on the population you're working with. Mm-hmm. So I work a lot with underserved populations, Medicaid populations, and I hear things like, well... It took too long to get an appointment, so it was better to go to the emergency room. I've also heard people say, you know, you get better care in the emergency room. Mm. Those doctors, they know a lot more. Mm. And it's the perception um, related to 
all the things that happen in the emergency room. So yeah. they think the level of care is better because it's so much more expansive. You can get your labs done, you can get x-ray done. So yeah. it, it's a perception issue. Yeah. And I also think a health literacy issue. Got it. Yeah. Because I would say when I got to the emergency room or when I have gone to the emergency room, I did not feel like I had a good level of care. It was like, let's see this person. Let's get her out because we got another person that needs to come in. Mm -hmm. Right? Whereas when I go to my um, primary care doctor, I know her on a first-name basis. I have her cell phone number. Like, we're able to have a dialogue. How's your blood pressure? How's that going? How are you eating? Like, having a prolonged conversation to talk about my, my daily lifestyle and how it's connected to my overall health is something that I appreciate. And I think others would too. Um, and, and I, and you know, I would 100% encourage creating a relationship with a physician and yeah. having an ongoing relationship. Yeah. So my last question for you, yeah. and as someone who's talking to patients all the time, yeah. I would be remiss if I did not ask you about health literacy. Uh-huh. So I would like to know if you're hearing things about things that suggest people have low health literacy and if you have any examples. It's hot. So I don't I think we talk to patients differently. Um, uh, so I can't say that I have a whole lot of knowledge about about that. But based off of what I would assume uh, and I, again, I think it depends on the, the, the different populations that you serve and work with and talk to. Um, I think it depends, right? I think that in certain communities, I would say, um, mostly white communities, people definitely go to the doctor, uh, and, and, and have the, and understand health literacy, um, and are very in tune with that. I will say, uh, communities of color, um, don't prioritize that, but I also understand why we have a ton of other things that we need to think about. And so mm -hmm. we usually put ourselves last. Um, so I understand that, but definitely think that there can be more work in talking about it with communities, definitely one-on-one -on -one door knocking, straight old, uh, organizing around, uh, around this work is really important. And I think that there's a missed opportunity in doctor's offices. I know we don't have folks going into these doctor's offices as much as we would like, but I think there's a missed opportunity that we should be utilizing, um, in doctor's offices where we're able to have some of these types of conversations. And I think it could definitely help move the ball forward, right? I think there are a lot of programs that doctors are, are utilizing where they're yesterday, just yesterday, I went to the giant over in Northeast DC and there was like a pop-up health clinic. Definitely necessary. And there was actually a line out there for people to see folks, right? Oh, wow. And so it was really good to were see Were they that. doing COVID testing? They were not doing COVID testing. It was like blood pressure checks, HIV screening, um, uh, just general like checkups for folks, right? Okay, I think well, those okay. are really important. Um, and I think good tools for folks to have because if, if they have access to it, I think people will definitely utilize it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think as you said before, it's hard for folks to get appointments. I know I've struggled um, I think I had a, uh, I went swimming and had like a, a clogged ear mm -hmm. and I would call for an appointment thinking that I was going to get one maybe in a couple of days. They told me my next appointment was in two months, right? Wow. Like, absolutely. That's a big And you have injury. private insurance. And I have private insurance. Yes. Um, so I can this only imagine. This is why imagine. people go to the emergency department. Yeah. What yeah. did you do? I ended up fixing the problem myself. <laughs> <laughs> Did you call someone to say what, what I called do I do? a friend. I called grapevine. a friend. It was you a doctor. called the grapevine. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. I called someone. I'm like, I cannot hear out of this ear. I went swimming. It's like water stuck in my ear. Um, they're like, they told me all these things on Amazon to do and to get, and like it eventually fixed itself. So wow. I was lucky, but you know, I, 
that is definitely a barrier to entry yeah. and something that I think needs to be fixed for sure. So. All right. Well, it's so great talking to you Me and hearing too. more about what you do. Thank you so much for your work in the community. Good Thank luck. you. Thank you for your work. I appreciate you. This is a really great conversation. Rosemary Inobakari sharing her insights from thousands of conversations with patients across the country. Thanks for listening to the Grapevine Health Podcast. Our producer is Nicholas Elias. Please like us on social media. You can find us at Grapevine Health on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram, and on Twitter at Health Grapevine. Until next time, I'm Dr. Lisa, signing off.